Okay, as our custom at Genesis, Genesis House, please stand with me. Revelation 1 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to our first official sermon in Revelation. The other sermons, of course, were introductory to get a feel for the the letter, but now we're actually going to dive in uh, verse by verse as we work through the entire letter. Now, I was almost tempted to skip the first eight verses, actually the first 11 verses of this book, because I've talked about these verses numerous times in the first two sermons. Then as I began to think about it, I thought, I better not do that for two reasons. Number one, repetition is good, especially in a letter so difficult as Revelation to understand. So to review some of the things we've talked about would do us some good and wouldn't do us any harm. Secondly, I actually discovered some really important truths in here that I had not mentioned in my sermons in the first two introductory ones. And so uh, uh, I'd like to spend some time Obviously, you're trying to pull out more than what we originally spoke about. But the first thing I want to point out here, by way of review, by way of review, is John's use of the word revelation in verse 1. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you will remember from sermon number 1 that this is the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get the English word apocalypse. Uh, In English, it means a manifestation or an unveiling of something, a revealing. Now, we spoke about some of the important details of apocalyptic literature. We talked about it often focused on the conflict between good and evil, uh, not just in the earthly realms, but in the spiritual realms. We we talked about how it, it always involved a suffering remnant under the hands of an evil enemy, in which the suffering remnant would cry out to God for deliverance with an expectation of judgment. And then God in this in apocalyptic literature would promise rewards and blessings for those who remain loyal in this tough world. But the key principle we took away was that apocalyptic literature uses colorful images, symbols, metaphors to convey spiritual truths. So the images are not always meant to be interpreted literally unless the author tells you how to interpret it literally. But what we are to take literally every time is the spiritual truth that the symbol is trying to convey. So apocalyptic literature basically says this. I'm going to give you a word picture, like a painting. 
Don't take it literally unless I tell you to, but look for the spiritual meaning behind what the picture is trying to convey. And Revelation, of course, we discovered, contains all these features of typical apocalyptic literature, which was really popular in between Testaments, between the Old Testament and New Testament in that 400 years. Now, what's important about this apocalypse from here is who it's from and who it's written to. So who is it from? Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, or if you have the NIV, it'll say a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he um, sent it and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. So that's a big mouthful. But basically what we have here is what I refer to as a big giant game of telephone. Remember those games you used to play when you were a kid? And you'd sit in a circle and you'd have a cup with a string and by the end of the circle, you'd hopefully get the message interpreted right as it was passed down from one to another. Well, this is what we have. So, so get, follow me here. It says, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, but God gave it to him. Then Jesus went and turned around and gave it to an angel. The angel went and turned around and gave it to John. And then John turned around and gave it to the seven churches in uh, Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. Which ultimately means, then, that this whole process was given to us as well. So here's what's important about the introduction, I think. John wants the church to know this, and he wants us to know this. This message has divine origins. Yes, there's a human person who's going to convey the message, but it has divine origins. Now, why would that be important? Well, again, remember the context of first century um, uh, Asia and the seven churches. They're going through tough times under the hands of the Roman Empire. There's a collision course between the church and the state. And John now is going to reveal some important things about how they're to live in relationship to this conflict. He's going to give them important instructions about how to live out their lives as believers and even have words of warning for compromise, which we can see in the seven churches has already began to happen as they're being worn down. Well, if he comes to them and says, like, I, John, say to you, that has a lot less weight than if he says, I, John, have come with a message from God to you. <laughs> Because now with the divine origins, doesn't matter whether you like John's words or not, you understand that God is speaking to you and not John. Really important, I think, in terms of the context. So it's John's way of asserting the authority of what he says. It's a word of prophecy from the throne room of God, from the throne room of heaven itself. So who was it written to? Well, in verse four, it's clear. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Verse 11, it's clear. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and so on. So we know it's to the modern day church. But what I like about verse 1 is he actually clarifies with an even more important word. It's not just the seven churches, he calls them bond servants. You notice that? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants. So the churches are defined as being bondservants. Now, this word in Greek is simple. It just means slave. So these are slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ. 
And this word bondservant is used throughout the entire Revelation letter over and over to describe who they are. It occurs multiple times to describe the church. But John writes this with two audiences in mind. Number one is the church in that context, right? The seven churches in an immediate context. And so we see that in chapters two where he addresses these churches and even in chapter one. But we also know this, he's actually addressing another audience, another group in mind, and that's believers throughout the entire church age. Bond servants isn't just about the first century, it's the churches of like the believers in all time through history, those who follow God, people like you and me. I want to just turn with you to show you this in chapter 22 and verse 3 and 4. This is the end of the letter, and now we've got the completion of everything in the book, and it's the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus has come, the nations have been judged, the world as we know it has ended, he's created a new heavens and earth. And in 22 verse 3, listen to this. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. Well, church, we don't, we don't think that the only people he's talking about is the first century churches. So let's say there's like, you know, 10,000 Christians amongst those seven churches. We don't think that the only people in Jerusalem in the new heavens is going to be those 10,000 people. This is a reference to the church universal. The church universal. So we know that the message is, has the origin of God, or his message is contained in the origins from God. We know the recipients now are the first century and the believers of all time. But what I love about this then is this. We see now Jesus concerned and cared, concerned and caring for each individual church, not only in that age, but in our age as well. He sees what's going on from the heavens. He sees what's happening in Okotoks. He sees what was happening in Laodicea, and he's concerned, and he cares for them. And so he has a personal message to give to them, to help them through the things they're facing under the Roman Empire. And likewise, he writes to us to help us to also persevere under whatever governing authorities we face ourselves under that may come in conflict with, with us as a church. And so Jesus cares for us. And this is pretty cool, like to think that the God of the universe actually knows what's going on in Okotoks. And he has a message for us in terms of how he wants us to live and the things to watch out for. It's a personal letter to us. And that's, not, that's amazing too, because in a, in, a, in a day and age of technology where we ignore texts and emails now because they're so commonplace, a personal letter still has a unique touch. And we still enjoy reading that. Well, this is God's word to us. It's God's word to us. It's a personal letter for us. So notice the purpose for the revelation, though, in verse 1 now. He says in verse 1, he, God gave him this revelation to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The purpose is to reveal to them what must soon take place. And in verse 3, he reminds them that the time is near. So, he tells the audience that the church is then. There's things that are going to happen and take place soon. The time is near. The question for us is what, is, what is he referring to and how near in the future is this? Well, many people, it, probably even in Genesis House and, and other Christians throughout the world and commentators and pastors believe this is a reference only to the second coming of Jesus. 
So it's a reference to his coming, because we know in the New Testament it always talks about the time of the Lord is near and be ready and so on and so forth. Now, I have no doubt John has that in mind. He is thinking second coming. But to only think that way, I believe, is a mistake. I actually think he's actually writing them about events that are going to happen outside of the second coming that are going to occur in their immediate experience in the first century church. So again, it's, it's including the second coming, but not limited to just that. And to do the letter of Revelation justice, we have to think about those things. So what were they going to experience? Well, we see in chapter 2, verse 10, for example, things soon were going to take place were things like this. He says, do not fear to the church in Smyrna what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested. Then he gives a you know, uh, conversation to someone like uh, Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world. So again, he's, he's talking about events in their immediate future as well. And Gordon Fee says it this way, um, and he's a fantastic uh, commentator and a, and a theologian. He says this, this word, this coming near and coming quickly and soon and all that, he says it's primarily spoken into the present situation of the seven churches, and its primary urgency is not about the final future, but the near future. This is important, too. Remember we talked about the futurist view of Revelation, where ever, when we approach the book and we think, this is all about the end times. In other words, none, nobody in history has ever experienced what Revelation's about. Not according to Gordon Fee, and even what's going on with John here. He's saying there's things in the first century church they are going to experience then and now. But we also learned in my first sermon that it's always too important to understand language through the Old Testament. When we come to Revelation, we need to know the Old Testament. I believe what John's doing here, and we'll go through it, is that he's actually using language, language that is similar to Daniel chapter 2. And he's referring to time and events of Daniel chapter 2. Now, Holy Spirit, you need to help me here, because I tried teaching my wife this stuff three times last night, and she had virtually no clue what I was talking about, and I uh, had to try in several ways, which ended up being a very 30-minute frustrating conversation. I was as mad at her that she couldn't make sense of what I was saying, but not, clearly it was my fault because I was just a bad teacher. So I'm going to try to do in one shot clearly what I tried to do with my wife three times last night unclearly. So if you like to pray for your pastor, now's the time. All right. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. But when you turn there, remember that John has just said the things which must soon take place and the time is near. And we're going to try to prove that he's rooting this not just in the second coming of Jesus, but in immediate, the immediate context of things that these churches facing. But the language is not by accident. So Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel, he's been exiled into Babylon because Israel has been in obedience, and he, even though he's been an obedient fellow himself, he still had to face the consequences of Israel's rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, finds favor with Daniel, and so has him in his court, and he's serving the king. He's serving a pagan king. One day, the, the, the Babylonian king gets a dream, 
He gets a dream and it freaks him out. And he tries to get someone to interpret it. And no one can, so he calls in Daniel. He calls in Daniel. But here was the dream. He had a dream of a statue made out of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and iron clay. And so he, and then he has another, and in that, in that statue, a stone cut out of a mountain comes and destroys the statue. So Daniel's called in to interpret this, and look at what Daniel says in verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, this statue and stone dream, neither, um, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar that which will take place in latter days. So think this through, church, now. Latter days. This, this dream you had is going to occur in the future. Remember what John has said in Revelation, the time is near, the time is soon. So he goes on now, and he tells him what the dream's about. So in chapter 2, later on, he says, King, Babylon, you're the gold king. Like, you're the gold representation of the statue. And then he says, but another kingdom's going to come after you, represented by the silver. Another kingdom's going to come after that one, represented by bronze. Another king's going to come, another kingdom comes, and it's represented by iron and clay. But he doesn't name what the kingdoms are. He doesn't name them. He just says, you king are Babylon, and the other kingdoms are unnamed. But we're left to figure out what that name is. We're trying to figure out in history who these kingdoms are. Well, in chapter 245, I want you to read this with me. After he reveals this kingdom-type structure and this God's kingdom, the stone that's going to destroy it all, in the second half of verse 45, he says this, God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the first time he says, before the interpretation, latter days, this is what's going to happen. Now he says, the future. What's amazing about this is... Uh, the king now is expecting kingdoms to come, successive kingdoms to come that he may not be alive for. The fourth kingdom, the one made out of iron clay, is defined in Daniel 7.7. 7. Read that with me. In Daniel 7.7, 7, he makes this declaration. He turns the kingdoms now into beasts. So the kingdoms now have become beasts in this apocalyptic literature. And he makes this declaration. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, it had large iron teeth. So again, iron teeth, first kingdom, or the fourth kingdom in the first Daniel 2 had iron and clay. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that was before it, and it had ten horns. So what's the identifying feature of this, this uh, creature, this beast? It has ten horns. Look at Revelation 13.1 now. Revelation 13.1. And the dragon stood on the stand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. Who is the empire in control in John's day? Rome. He's defined here as having ten horns. 
Who's the kingdom predicted in Daniel 700 years earlier? Because as this is written in about 90 AD, Babylon's around 600 AD, 700 years later, who are the kingdoms now in power? Rome, the fourth beast, according to Revelation. Revelation is fulfilling Daniel in terms of those prophecies. And in both places, there's a kingdom to come after Rome, which is God's kingdom. That's the fifth kingdom to come, the stone. And so here's what's important. Daniel says this, in the latter days, in the future king, this, these kingdoms are coming. John stands there in Revelation and says this, the time is near. The time is coming soon. Why? He's 700 years later in history now, and Rome's in power. And he's already told them, think the Roman Empire is here, and it's going to get worse under the Roman hands. And so this is why he uses that language. And so the Revelation readers are going back to Daniel and thinking, oh, okay, I get what he's getting at. But not only is Rome even closer in its fulfillment, God's kingdom is 700 years closer in coming as well. Hence why he uses those words. Did I have to go into that long rabbit trail of this? No, not at all. I probably could have moved on after Gordon Fee's comment. But remember, I'm trying to teach you over and over and over to root this book in the first century and to also to always think Old Testament when you're reading these passages to make sense of the text. Denise, was that better today than yesterday? Okay, good. <clears throat> Practice makes perfect. Okay. So, just to put a final period on the end of the sentence, what Daniel expected to occur in the last days, John is now announcing as imminent, and it's even occurring in their time. One more comment before we move on to the final section here. John says, you're blessed if you obey and hear the words of this revelation. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written it for the time is near. When he says blessed are those who hear and heed to it or obey it, that should put you back into the thought process of James. Remember what James says? It's not only hearers of the word, it's the doers of the word that are followers of Christ, right? So you're not just, a, as a Christian, you don't just hear the word, you do the word that you hear. This is John's way of saying the same thing. When you heed Revelation, it's about not only hearing it, it's about doing it. If you do it, you are blessed. You are, you, if you heed the words that are instructed in this book, you receive a blessing. Again, I'm going to speak to the futurist view of those who held to Revelation. This is only about end times, which was me until a year ago. This is really important. A lot of people in chapter 4 say everything from 1 to 3 is written, in the is written to the first century, and from 4 to 22 is to the future, which, like our generation. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to suggest to you, well, not suggest, I'm going to tell you <laughs> that the whole book, the entire 22 chapters is written to the first century church, not just, not just the first three. I'll give you one proof. Write in go to chapter 22, verse 6. 22, verse 6 you're going to find a repeat of chapter 1, verse 3. 
Listen to 22.6. He said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Come, well, and behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. But John, you're past chapter four. I know. Blessed is he who heeds to the entire letter of Revelation, not just the first three in the first century as they're reading it. That means chapters 4 through 22, church, have to speak to their present conditions, and there's instructions in there to them as well. Again, this is why I had to change my theological position, that even though there's future events planned for the church in Revelation, it's rooted in the first century. And everything in every chapter has something to say to that context. Once we understand that, then we apply it to ourselves as well. When I went to Regent College um, to uh, study, I was terrified to take this course because I thought Revelation is not going to bless me at all. I'm going to walk out a nervous wreck. It's actually going to put a cursing on me. (laughs) But when I walked out and understood this, it made a huge difference to my life. Because first of all, I knew that I was just walking in in God's big plan of redemption. I was one of many, both past, present, and future, that are living living the life of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I'm just one little pawn in a giant chess game. I'm not some special, unique church that's waiting for this sort of hell on earth to unleash. This is the reality of Christian life. I was like, okay, God, like there's comfort in knowing that like I'm one of millions throughout history. I'm not going to be just one unique person at the end of time, if I even survive to that time. Also, it was great, too, because then I was getting a heads up. God was giving me a, like almost like a game plan before you go into a hockey game. Here's the team you're facing. Here's the battle strategies you need. God's giving us a game plan of the things to look out for in the enemy's tactics. Awesome for having victory in battles, isn't it, church? So again, like this is why it's a blessing. And obedience in this book, if, you're, if, you're, if you obey the words and in the, in the, in the instructions in here, the, the eternal rewards that you receive from the Jesus Christ are incredible. The eternal rewards you have promised for the future are absolutely incredible. Now, I know I've said a lot, uh, maybe some of it not necessary from your perspective, but I wanted to just get these things across because like for me they're super important in shaping my understanding of the book so let's dive in now to chapter verse four let's look at the personal address to the seven churches he was writing to he says john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John starts off his letter like any New Testament letter that Paul wrote. He gives a personal greeting to the recipients, and he does what characteristic of Paul all the time is. He, uh, he says, grace to you and peace from our God and our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. John does the same thing. He offers him grace and peace, but he doesn't mention God the Father by name. All he mentions is Jesus Christ. He uses unique language. He says, from the one who is and who was and who is to come, 
and the seven spirits are before his throne. So what do we do with this? Well, again, we go back to the Old Testament. We go back to the Old Testament. Who is the one who is and was to come? Well, in verse 8, we actually see very clearly who it is. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and was is to come. So this is John's way of saying, this is God the Father. This is God the Father. If you want to uh, um, root this in the Old Testament, you go to like Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. Almost like A and Z for us in English. The last and the first in the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's rooted in Isaiah 44, 6. There is no God besides me. And so it's also similar to the Exodus language in Exodus chapter 3 in verse 14. When it appears to Moses in the burning bush and Moses is sent to Israel and he says, uh, who do I say that you are? And he says, tell them I am sent you. I am the ever-present, the ever-existing one, the eternal one. Same type of language as who is and who was and who is to come. I'm eternal. There is no other besides me. But then he says, also from the seven spirits, and I love this one. <laughs> Some people think this is the, he's referring to angels. Angels are the one who are sending this on. But based on where it's sandwiched between, between God and Jesus, I, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I would suggest this is not about angels. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. What does the number seven refer to in Revelation? Perfection, fullness, completion. Can you think of anywhere in the Old Testament where God speaks of the Spirit in sevens? Well, there's two places, Isaiah 11:2. You can write that in your margin. And Zechariah 4, 6. Let's look at one of them. Zechariah 4, 2 to 6. So uh, Zechariah is talking to um, the Lord, and he says, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. What do you see? I see seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? By my spirit, declares the Lord. <laughs> John is rooting the seven spirits back to the Old Testament to say, this is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, church. This is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So when you think of this way now, look at the address. He's saying grace and peace to you from um, God, God, the Trinitarian God. Let me define to you who God is. Let me define to you, he is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He sends you a message of grace and peace. But I think the most important thing here is his description of Jesus. His description of Jesus. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Right in your margin, Psalm 89. Psalm 89. The faithful witness, verse 37. 
The firstborn of the dead, verse 27. The ruler of the kings of the earth, verse 27. This is a messianic psalm. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, God made promises to David, the line of David, that there'd always be a king on his throne through his lineage, one who would rule over the world and rule over his enemies, and it'd be an eternal, uh, eternal kingdom. John is saying, taking the, the promises made to David in Psalm 89 and applying them to Jesus Christ. He's applying them to Jesus Christ. And he calls them three particular things, which we need to just quickly make a brief note on. First of all, he's a faithful witness. In Greek, the word witness means martis, M-A-R-T-Y-S, where we get the name martyr from. So he's the faithful martyr. Now, witness can be in your words, no doubt about it. And Jesus did that, didn't he? He was faithful. He never shrunk back from declaring truth, no matter what it cost. Number two, he went all the way to the cross and lost his life for the sake of truth. And he's saying, you remember, this message comes from that faithful witness. Now, why would that be important for us and for them? The same thing we've been talking about the entire time. The church is on a collision course with Rome in a day when many were suffering uh, because of their own witness in connection to Jesus. And so John is saying, remember Jesus and how faithful he was as a witness so that you may carry out the same thing as he did. He's also the firstborn of the dead. This without question is a reference to Jesus being the first person to, in history to be resurrected. Consider Colossians 1.18. Listen to Paul, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that everything he may have the supremacy. He is the first one to be resurrected. Why is that important? If you're going to lose your life in the Roman Empire back then for the sake of Christ or be thrown in prison, you uh, need to have confidence that your wife, when it dies, is worth it. The fact that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, he was the first one to resurrected, means because you have faith in them, you will also be resurrected to join him in his kingdom in the future. So remembering that he is the one to be resurrected first is also going to help you in your willingness to be loyal to him in this lifetime now, knowing that you will be resurrected because of his victory over the grave. How about the ruler of the kings of the earth? Again, one can hardly miss the importance of this statement. The kings in Revelation and the, and the emperors are vying for the allegiance of God's people and from all people. From the outside looking in, the emperor and his right-hand men are clearly the rulers of the earth. John says, not so fast. <laughs> the true king of kings is not the emperor or not the right-hand men that he has in power but the crucified and risen Christ, the man from Galilee who rose from the dead. So John reflects on who Jesus is, and it leads to massive praise. Massive praise. He says in verse 5, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This description of Jesus, I think, is powerful. 
and for me was the most gripping in this text, and the reason why I wanted to preach this sermon, look at another title that John gives Jesus Christ, to him who loves us. To him who loves us. Some of you in here today feel unlovable. That's condemnation from the devil. He says, to the one, to him who loves us. How did he love us? He says he released us from our sins. The ultimate sacrifice. You know, I was thinking about my own life when I read that. And I've used this analogy a hundred times in this church, and sorry, I have nothing new, but I'm just a one-trick pony. But uh, I talk about this all the time. If someone was to make a DVD of my life and put it on this PowerPoint and hit play, I would run out the door so that you never saw how I lived when I was 16, 18, 21, 25, 29. Like, I would not want you to see that life. My mom, who's online, would faint. Probably that would end her life. Right? Right, mom? So, yeah. She's like, what is he talking about? <laughs> That's another. I'm 46 now. I can tell you. I can tell you these things without getting in trouble. I hope. So... Yeah, but I wouldn't hit play on that movie, church. I wouldn't. And I know you wouldn't either. There's no way. Invite the head of police in Okotoks to come watch. Maybe your, your grandfather and your grandmother, your best friends, your husband, your wife, your kids, and hit play. Not a chance. Not a chance. But Jesus says, I love you, and I died for your sin. I died for the stuff that you won't hit play on the movie screen because you're too embarrassed and ashamed to hit the button. But I went to the cross for that stuff. That's what I went to the cross for. I was studying Matthew chapter 1, and this just like struck me like a few, a few months ago. <clears throat> I was reading just for, just for fun, just for pleasure, no agenda. And I came to the angel talking to Joseph and Mary after he said, you're going to have a baby and that God's going to be the father and you won't be and there's going to be disgrace in your family because Mary obviously is going to be accused of adultery and so on. But the angel comes to, to Joseph and says one thing that just hit me over the head. He goes, um, uh, Matthew uh, 1.20, uh, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child has been conceived is in her of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For, substantiation clause, he will save his people from their sins. So, if an angel came to your mom or your dad and says, I want to give you a one-liner for your child's life in terms of purpose, what would it be? You know, good father you know, head of, you know, security at such and such a job or best engineer on the planet. One message that, that, that uh, the angel could give Joseph, and he says this, your son will be called Jesus because he will save people from their sin. And I was like, wow, like that's a pretty, that's a pretty succinct synopsis of his life. That's his purpose. 
And, Jesus, and John says it. He loves you so much. He went for the cro- to the cross for the things that you would never hit play on the movie screen for. That's why there's no rituals that you can ever do to earn God's favor. You can't fast enough, beat yourself up enough, condemn yourself enough. Can you do anything to yourself worse than dying on a cross? You can't do more to yourself than dying on a cross. And even if you go on the cross, it won't be for, um, it'll just because of self-pity. Jesus did it for love for you. He did it also with a purpose. Look at this. Not only was the provision to forgive you a sin, I love verse 6. Mark, this is for you, buddy. Because you, I've heard you say this a thousand times. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests to, for God the Father. God and the Father. To him be the glory and the domain forever and ever. Go back to Exodus language. Go back to Old Testament. Can you think of anywhere where God said to someone, you are going to be a kingdom of priests for me? Right in your Bibles, Exodus 19.6. 19.6. I don't have it down there. That's uh, Anyway, in 19.6, he says to Israel, you will be, when I free you from Egypt, a kingdom of priests for me. Now, what was a kingdom of priests? What was a kingdom supposed to, or what was a priest supposed to do? A priest in the Old Testament in Israel's day interceded on your behalf. He would mediate between you and God. You'd come to the temple. You couldn't even get to God. You could, like there was physical barriers and everything was in the way to say you have no access to him. You'd bring your blood sacrifice to the door, the tent, he would sacrifice your animal. Then he'd take the blood and, he'd, and over time, like it would go farther and farther in the temple. Once a year, the blood would make it into the Holy of Holies where God was. You, were, you had a physical barrier showing you that you were disconnected from God. The priest had to do all the work to mediate on your behalf. Israel was to be a light to the other nations. They were to mediate between them and God to the Gentile nations around them, and they failed miserably. That's why they're in captivity in Babylon, because actually it was the other way around. The nations influenced them, not the other way around. Jesus says this, through the forgiveness that Christ offers you, every believer has access to God and can intercede on behalf of others. You have direct access to God. The reason why you can pray and they can be, those prayers are, can be heard and the reason why you can, uh, you know, uh, don't have to do animal sacrifices and you can claim people forgiven in the name of Jesus is because Christ did it all on the cross. He made you to be the priest. He gave you full access to God. Again, huge implication in the first century under the Roman Empire. They're claiming that the Roman Empire is the kingdom you serve. And your purpose is to serve the emperor as a, as, a, as a slave, basically, to them. Not so, says John. You've been made into a kingdom to serve God the Father, and you have made to be priests in his kingdom. Some of you struggle with purpose in Genesis House. What am I here for? What am I doing? I'm only this, I'm only that. Jesus says, I have made you to be a kingdom of priests. Your first and number one responsibility as a forgiven human being in the, under the blood of Jesus is to be a priest for him. You have access to God and you can intercede on behalf of others. Again, you see why the importance of fasting and prayer as we seek for this community? 
We're saying, God, I believe you've given me the privilege to be a priest, so I'm going to fast and pray to show humbleness to you. So when I go out into the streets and share the faith, my faith with other people, I'm serving you as a priest the way you created me to be. That is my number one priority. That is your number one priority as a follower of the Lord. It's awesome. What a provision, what a, what a blessing to be given. If you struggle with purpose, again, it's lies and the condemnation of the devil. Jesus says, I've offered you forgiveness so you can, so you can serve me in my kingdom as a priest in intercession. But for others, you have full access to me. Finally, Jesus is defined as a judge. Verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Right in your margin, Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12.10. Daniel 7.13, Zechariah 12.10. When he says, I'm coming on the clouds, that's Daniel 7.13, and the rest of it about mourning and piercing, that's all Zechariah 12.10. But here's the point. He has just talked about the provisions and privileges of being in Jesus Christ in verse 6. When he comes in the clouds, we will be resurrected at that time. We receive the new body and be with God in the heavens and in the earth forever, the new heavens and new earth. Not so for the person who rejected him. He says when he comes, every, evil, every eye will see him, but they will mourn over him stands in direct contrast to the believer's reality in verses 5. The coming of the one whose death freed us from our sins will at the same time bring great mourning to those who are held responsible for it. And again, we can't forget in verse 1, he says this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The focus of the whole letter is the second coming of the Lord um, and his establishment of the kingdom at the end of time in terms of the ultimate fulfillment. That's why last week I said in my sermon, the principal crisis facing humankind is a future encounter with a glorified Christ. But the reality is, church, the decision has to be made in this lifetime. It's made in this lifetime. Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. So what have we done with Jesus today? Some of you may have, may know him intimately and have Come to him in full-on repentance for the sins in your life. And you have the confidence that God loves you and has released you from sin. There may be others in here who haven't done that yet. You haven't done that yet. If this is the first time you've understood the gospel or have you contemplated Jesus in this way, come and talk to me after the service and I can help you with how I, would, um, I personally received the Lord and the things I think that he would like from you in terms of how to do that. But again, remember this, he loves you. He loves you, but you don't receive that by osmosis. You, just because he loves you doesn't mean you're forgiven. He loves you enough to give you your free will to make a decision to accept him on his terms or not. So his love is unconditional, but the forgiveness is conditional upon you trusting the Lord 
with his word and his offer to you to receive him. But God's love, so he will not force himself upon you. You have to make the decision to follow him on your own merit. So what do we learn? As an apocalypse, the symbolic imagery contained within Revelation is not meant to be interpreted literally. The only thing to be taken literally is the spiritual truth the symbol is trying to convey. I should say the symbolism is trying to convey. I know that's a repeated lesson from uh, three or four weeks ago. That's really important when we read Revelation. Number two, there's a blessing for those who listen to and obey the words contained within Revelation. The blessing is this. It's a personal word from God to us. The God of the universe wants to give you a message. He wants to speak to you. What a blessing. You like hearing from your grandmother or your girlfriend or whatever. This is the God of the universe saying, I want to talk to you. There's a blessing in that. Number two, it gives you a heads up as to what to expect in the future. He, he walks through 22 chapters of what it is to live out the Christian life. So there's no, there's no uh, surprises when it comes. So you're blessed. Thank you, Lord, for telling me that this is what it's going to be like and what I'm going to face and so on. It's a game plan before you go on to the battlefield, before you play the sports, um, the, you know, the final of the Stanley Cup, so to speak. But more, most importantly, I think, is a prom it's a blessing because if you walk in obedience to the letter, there's incredible rewards for those of you who remain loyal right to the end. This sort of spills off of this one. Jesus cares for and is deeply concerned with the state of his church. Lesson three. John to the seven churches, it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. He's watching what's going on in, in Asia. And he's like, they need a message from me. They need to hear from me. So he's not like separated from them. He's actually cares for and is worried about the state of the church. So he sees Genesis house. God in the heavens is deeply concerned for us and how we operate and the things that are going on here. And so the written word is, is here for us to help us process how to work through the way Jesus thinks. And we know from the things we said in Corinthians, there are words of wisdom, words of prophecy, words of knowledge. He can communicate in visions and dreams and audible voices. God can still use those things today to communicate things to us and how he wants us to move through in ministry. So I love this, this is cool. And finally, knowing John's description of Jesus in chapter one will be of tremendous benefit to us in helping us remain loyal to him in the midst of trials and persecutions. I'll go back to this in a second. So watch this, I'm struggling in this world. I want to pack it in. I want to give it in. And I stop and I go, okay, Jesus, you're the faithful witness. You never shrink back in word or deed. You even lost your, were faithful to God to the point of death. Okay, God, I'm going to follow after you as, as, as a bondservant of yours. Lord, I'm really worried about losing my life, what it is to follow you. I'm just scared of death and so on and so forth. I remember you're the firstborn of the dead. You were resurrected, so therefore I will be resurrected when you come back because you conquered death for me. Lord, I'm struggling because I feel like Trudeau and, and uh, Biden and all these guys are the rulers of the earth. All oh, right, okay, you're the crucified Galilean is the ruler of the earth. He is actually the king of this world, and I can put my trust in his reign. 
Oh, I feel so bad about myself. I hate myself. I wish I would just die. I wouldn't wake up. God is the one who loves you. <laughs> He's given you incredible provisions. He will forgive you. And he's given you purpose. You're a priest in his kingdom. Another one, Lord, I'm just struggling so much in this world because so many people don't care for you and they just mistreat Christian people and they don't care about your ways and they're just so awful and I just wish it would just come to an end. Oh, right, I remember in, in Revelation you said you're a judge. When you come in the clouds, you will deal with justice and rule forever. Verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, amen. Lord, I give you thanks for your word. I thank you that your Holy Spirit helped me convey truth more clearly than it maybe went last night and uh, how you can overcome even um, a confused mind. And uh, I just thank you too for your word. And I know the church has a lot to think about in terms of who you are and what the purpose you've given us. But we, we know ultimately, right from the get-go, the one thing to take away from here is that you loved us. You loved us. You do love us. But that love is freely given but we have to be willing to freely receive it. And so, again, we all walk at different stages in life where some of us trusted you fully and others are not so sure. But we just pray, God, that over time, that um, those who have heard this message will, will receive it and, and accept you for who you are and, and allow the provisions you provide for them to be, overflow their lives. May this message go out into the community as we seek to uh, change the direction of our church in terms of our evangelism and how we love others. And this needs to be the message that we take to the streets that we, that Jesus Christ loves and he's come to free us from sin. So thank you for your word and how it speaks to us throughout all the generations in Christ's name. Amen.